Hello, Politics Plus Media 101 listeners. Today, we have a very exciting discussion for you. We are sitting here with Michael Gerhardt. Michael Gerhardt is the foremost expert on impeachment, its history, its legal implications, and the practice of impeachment, uh, given his involvement in really all of our recent impeachment instances. So he is a distinguished professor of jurisprudence at the University of North Carolina Law School. He's the author of six books, and his most recent book is on the topic of discussion today. The book is called The Law of Presidential Impeachment, a Guide for the Engaged Citizen. And before we begin, I want to make sure that anyone listening understands the significance of Professor Gerhardt in the field of impeachment. He was the only joint witness in the 1998 impeachment of President William Clinton. He was an expert who testified and was consulted during the impeachments of President Donald Trump. He has been an impeachment analyst on CNN, on Fox, on MSNBC. He was a special counsel to uh, Senator Patrick Leahy, who was a presiding officer over Supreme Court confirmations and, and I believe, uh, the impeachment as well. He even testified at the very first public hearing of the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. So if you want to know about impeachment, the person you have to speak to is the person we are speaking to today. Well, well, thank you. I'm quite humbled. I'm, I'll do my best. <laughs> well, let me start by talking a little bit about the book that you're about to publish. So the book, as we said, is called The Law of Presidential Impeachment, A Guide for the Engaged Citizen. And I thought the subtitle was an interesting choice because impeachment is a tool used by Congress. The impeachment happens by the House of Representatives, and the decision to convict, remove, acquit happens in the U.S. Senate. Of course, citizens elect members of Congress, but impeachment is not usually one of the issues that citizens vote on and are most active in around election time. So because you've positioned this book as a guide for citizens, uh, could you help us understand why citizens need to understand how impeachment works and how a citizen should understand and engage with the topic of impeachment. Sure. Uh, but let me just begin by also just thanking you again for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. One of the most important things I think everyone, and that includes citizens, should understand is there are only a few mechanisms in the Constitution for holding presidents accountable for their misconduct. And the most important of these is impeachment. We have elections. Uh, we have congressional oversight and a couple of other uh, mechanisms, but nothing is as momentous as impeachment because it allows and gives to Congress the authority to be able to remove a president in the midst of a term, of a term. could be an elected president, uh, could be a president who sort of ele is elevated to the office. Regardless, the president takes office subject to the possibility of impeachment if he engages in serious misconduct. So it's important, I think, to understand the uniqueness and specialty of impeachment and at the same time understand how that process works because we have had it happen here several times within the last 25 years. And uh, it's not entirely clear how well people understand the subject. And so my hope is with this book and anything else I can do, to try and make this subject easier to understand, especially easier to appreciate its significance as a check on presidential power. Professor, I wanted to follow up there. You outlined 
why impeachment is so important. And it leads us to ask, where did the framers get the idea for the impeachment mechanism? We hear a lot about where the divisions of power came from, legislative, executive, judicial, from, you know, in part, the great political philosopher Montesquieu's spirit of the laws. And impeachment uh, is unequivocally one of the mechanisms that helps, you know, uphold our triangle, make sure everybody's equal here. We all have oversight. Was there a specific political philosophical text like the spirit of the laws? Was it from, you know, how England or another country was carrying out their oversight? Where did the framers get this concept from? They got it primarily from England. They knew that it existed in England. Um, It's been in England since the 1200s. But the framers were familiar with the British practice that included impeachment. And they also appreciated that in England, impeachment um, was something that could be used against anyone, anyone in the society except for the king. And therefore, the only person that was really above the law and uh, didn't have to obey the law and didn't have to and was not subject to impeachment was the king. Obviously, that angered the colonists. And the colonists also got the idea of impeachment to some extent from the colonies, which it modeled some impeachment procedures there on the British practice. And the framers made it very clear that impeachment was going to be central to the founding of the new republic, because when they declared their independence, they set forth over 20 articles of impeachment against the king. And if you read the Declaration of Independence, you will read all these articles that were uh, that charged the king with misconduct. The framers well knew that the British king couldn't be subject to impeachment, but they wanted to break away from England in part to um, perhaps found a country whose leader would be subject to impeachment, something that they had not experienced while the king ruled over the colonies. Professor, I'm thinking of an incident in British history that happened about 150 years prior to the American Revolution, uh, the trial and execution of King Charles I. Even though in the British unwritten constitutional system, there wasn't an impeachment mechanism available for the king, could we say that through that process, there was an even harsher penalty available. Uh, was there a kind of executive accountability in, in that system as, as executed by Parliament at the time? Well, there was in, in a very practical sense, and you've just described it. Um, it wasn't as if there was a code that set forth the beheading of a king as one way to hold that person responsible for misconduct. What I think the framers realized is that because the king was not subject to impeachment, the likeliest, or for that matter, election, the likeliest way to try and redress grievances against the king was a rebellion. Take and literally to fight a war, defeat the king, and then if necessary, kill the king. So I think as we try to understand the way that the framers thought about impeachment, the biggest question that comes to my mind is the framers' understanding of the bar for severity. I think that the cause is written relatively plainly that high crimes and misdemeanors must be found. And we can think of the criminal code maybe as a way to understand what a high crime or misdemeanor might be. But I think that as we understand it, impeachment shouldn't just be used for any crime. I I think most people would probably agree that President Clinton was actually, in fact, guilty of what he was charged with. 
But many believe that it wasn't a severe enough crime for him to be future removed. And maybe we had some examples of that in Trump's presidency as well, when as early as the summer of 2018, it was pretty clear that Trump had committed criminal offenses when his lawyer, Michael Cohen, pleaded guilty in a case that implicated President Trump in campaign finance crimes. But there was really no discussion in Congress seriously about impeaching President Trump over those campaign finance crimes that certainly took place. So even if we think about some idea of where the bar might be now, I'm interested in knowing how the framers thought about this. Did they believe that impeachment should only happen in the case of serious crimes? And how did they understand where that bar might be set? What makes a high crime? Well, this is a great question. Um, the, the framers did understand that the basis for impeachment wasn't going to be just the American criminal law. Instead, they borrowed those terms, uh, treason, bribery, and particularly other high crimes and misdemeanors from the British, from the British practice, in which high crimes and misdemeanors refer to serious misconduct or abuse of power. The other thing the framers had in mind, and they talked about this during the convention, is that impeachment served a very important purpose because it was directed at misconduct that the law itself might not be available to redress. So the idea that, oh, we'll just wait until the president leaves office, then we'll subject him to civil and criminal processes, was not something the framers ever endorsed because they understood that abuse of power, for example, was not something the criminal law forbade. And yet abuse of power was, would cause serious injury to the republic. For example, the president pardons himself. That could be one example where we might argue he's abused that power. Or the president uh, pardons people with whom he has entered into a criminal conspiracy. The president has lied to the Senate about a treaty. Those are serious acts of misconduct. There's no legal redress for them. And the framers created impeachment in part to be able to get at misconduct that the law could not get at. And I mean, it's been well over uh, now, over 150 years since the first presidential impeachment, which was in 1868. There has to be some type of evolution on how legal scholars understand impeachment. Can you walk us through if there's been a major evolution, like you would assume with most laws, or if impeachment is a little bit different and there hasn't been that type of evolution? I'm not entirely sure there has been that kind of evolution. And that's in part because we have not had many presidential impeachments. You note quite accurately the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, uh, an event that occurred uh, decades after the founding and ratification of the Constitution. And that was thought to be quite a huge and unique event. We did not have another presidential impeachment or even talk about one, any serious talk about one, until Richard Nixon. That's more than 100 years later. So I think impeachment was generally thought to be um, something that was rarely used. And therefore, I don't think scholars gave it a lot of attention. Um, and that's partly because scholars tend to focus on the Supreme Court more. I think it's secondly, because impeachment depends on Congress and most legal scholars have very low uh, respect for Congress. Um, 
And then I think a third reason is, again, just the few instances. So there's not that much to really look at in terms of the practice. But I think if we look at the practice, look at the arguments made in each of the proceedings against presidents, and also match those up against what we know from the framing of the Constitution, we can begin to put together a relatively coherent view of impeachment um, and one that I think could withstand the test of time. I suppose it's sort of a provocative question to ask a scholar and lawyer of the impeachment process in constitutional law. But I guess what comes to mind is if it's political actors that are the ones using this tool and we don't really have any way to get them to use the law properly as we understand it, does that mean that there isn't really a concrete law here that we're making it up as we get along and that the political actors are able to completely reshape and reimagine how impeachment should work every single time they give it a try. Well, you could you could be right. Um, I, you know, I can't prove that you're wrong. Um, I think that what what has developed is a sense that Congress has not been able to sort of live up to the expectations that the framers originally had for Congress, uh, particularly the United States Senate. The framers envisioned that the Senate would be composed of people who could rise above petty politics and be able to um, look at and evaluate really huge seismic questions about the Constitution and to do so in a relatively um, nonpartisan fashion. That vision of the Senate has almost never been the reality of the Senate. And particularly after the Constitution was amended to allow for direct election of senators, the Senate has become much more like the House in that the members are acutely attentive to what the public thinks. And they're real, And the other factor here, of course, is the development of major political parties. Political parties were not something the framers planned well for. And what we have found over time, particularly since the impeachment of Bill Clinton, that political party sometimes matters more than fidelity to the law or fidelity to the Constitution. And it, what it ends up meaning is that if the members of a president's party oppose impeachment, ex, ex, oppose conviction in the Senate, they can block it because the Constitution requires at least two-thirds of the senators to agree to convict somebody and remove them from office. But if that two-thirds has never been met, that threshold's never been met in the case of a president of the United States, and that tells us something about uh, both Congress and about the presidency. And, and what it tells us, I think, is that the presidency is a very hard institution to keep in check. The way that I took what you said was the framers had a misunderstanding or a misperception of how the Senate would work, that these people wouldn't be just focused on their personal political power or the power political power of their party. They put the country first and that it has almost never worked that way. So that would lead me to think that it did work that way at one point. So that's the first part of my question. Uh, do we have any examples where the Senate actually worked like the way the framers intended? And the, the second part is, were there any circumstances or consequences when the framers were thinking up how they were going to create the Senate, the two-thirds threshold for things like impeachment, which would 
necessarily require putting the country first and at least the document of the constitution first over everything else, over your personal ambitions. Was there something in the context, the circumstances where these topics were being debated that would lead them to believe that, okay, patriotism is so strong and the belief in this document is so strong that we can set this high bar and it will be met and people will follow this? Like, Why would the framers do something that just seems so counter to human nature? I think they thought that the Senate had the potential to be able to function like what ancient political philosophers thought was possible for people who were educated and for people who cared about civic virtue. Most of the framers thought that the most important thing in the United States was going to be education and that education was going to not just liberate the people, uh, so to speak, certainly from ignorance, but it was going to uh, inculcate within leaders a sense of priorities in which they could put the country first and the constitution first. Um, There may be some isolated circumstances we could point to in the early years of the Republic where we could say, yes, the Senate was really operating then, maybe not in a strictly sort of partisan way. Keep in mind in the early days of the Republic, senators were chosen by state legislatures. They were not chosen directly by the the people of their respective states. But if you look at the first impeachment, for example, it involves somebody named William Blunt, who happened to be from North Carolina, and he happened to be a corrupt official. He also happened to be a United States senator. And the Senate overwhelmingly expelled Blunt. This is the first Congress. So people were able to see, okay, we're not going to just think about this in a partisan way. We can, you know, we're going to think about this in in the big picture way. This person's causing injury. He's no longer really um, has the integrity to do this job. We're going to expel him. So it was an overwhelming vote to expel him from the Senate. Then the House proceeded to impeach Blunt, and it went back to the Senate. And there, the vote was not, the vote ended up being very complicated. And most of the senators concluded that they could not convict and remove Blunt because, as a senator, he wasn't an officer of the United States and therefore subject to impeachment. So that may be an isolated episode of possibly we could say, oh, that looks like maybe how the system should work. We could fast forward and think about Nixon, Richard Nixon. Um, It took two years of investigation, and uh, at the end of which, the House began its impeachment inquiry. And the Senate had been conducting its own sort of investigation of the Watergate break-in and the fallout from that break-in. And one of the things that happened, as we know, is that Richard Nixon withheld tapes of conversations from the White House. He he had been ordered by a judge to produce them. He didn't. That case went up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court unanimously told Richard Nixon, ordered Nixon, to turn over the tapes. And Nixon did. Uh, Nixon also resigned shortly thereafter. Now, today, we probably couldn't imagine a president resigning. But Nixon, for all of his faults, I think, saw not only the writing on the wall, but he he followed the Constitution in that regard. And at the same time, Nixon asked people, leaders in the House and the Senate, Republican leaders in the House and Senate, um, what chances do I have to kind of stay in office? And leaders from both chambers, Republican leaders from both chambers, told Nixon, you're going to lose. 
So we could also look at that as an event which really sort of tested Congress and Congress rose to the challenge. Professor, it's interesting to hear that the framers believed in the early republic that there would be enough patriotism and civic nationalism to overcome these human vices and corruption, and that education and elitism would help towards that end. Because when we look at the early republic, we see a very fragile system. We had a failed regime, the Articles of Confederation, which led to the uh, 1787 Constitution. We had multiple insurrections, the Shays Rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion. And when we're looking at the actions of educated elites, political figures, we had a vice president of the United States, one of the most educated and elite figures in American history, who was an early feminist, who had a portrait of Mary Wollstonecraft over his mantle, Aaron Burr, who not only murdered a cabinet secretary, but also was charged with treason, with attempting to create a breakaway republic in Alabama and fighting a war against the United States. And uh, in some ways, looking at how fragile the story of the early republic was, it starts to remind you a little bit of today, uh, of nefarious, corrupt elites, educated or not, of insurrections, uh, of threats against the constitutional regime, and questions over whether partisanship uh, could possibly be trumped by civic nationalism. Well, I'm going to paraphrase James May, uh, Madison. I mean, James Madison said, you know, if men were angels, we basically wouldn't need government. And so I think the framers understood. Uh, Madison, by the way, graduate of Princeton, just like Aaron Burr was. Um, Burr's father was the president of Princeton. Didn't seem to help him in becoming a traitor. But I think such treacherous behavior was not a complete surprise to the framers. They knew that... um, People could be corrupted, and they knew that people could be corrupt. And their hope was that serving in government would be an ennobling experience, and that what, uh, and the people who would serve there would be better educated, um, as say, really more aware of a better understanding of how the world works and of economics and governance. Um, And I think that. one of the things the framers put into the Constitution, of which impeachment is one example, were a series of checks and balances that were designed to prevent tyranny of the, of the majority and also executive tyranny. So with uh, impeachment, for example, uh, while a majority of the House has the power to impeach a president, the Senate needs, as I've said before, at least two-thirds of the senators to agree to convict. The idea behind that threshold was to make it so high that the only basis on which a president could be convicted and removed was likely going to be a bipartisan basis. So those kinds of structural mechanisms are kind of, you can find them throughout the Constitution, and they're designed to keep people in check. And I think one thing we found about impeachment is that that two-thirds threshold keeps Congress or has kept Congress from removing people abusively. But it's also made it harder to get at people who many of us might think were actually engaging in serious misconduct. So if impeachment hasn't been used in many cases or even attempted, it's still hanging like a sword of Damocles over the executive. And we've talked about how today it's become almost useless because the partisanship and the structural 
aspects of the American political system make it so hard to even imagine a two-thirds majority for removing a president from office. But maybe at other times in American history, it was more of a real threat against the presidency. Is there any evidence that this helped contain excesses of the executive? It helped deter corruption by the president, even if it wasn't used until uh, 1868? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question, too. I, I, I think the answer is yes, um, but that har- evidence may be a little harder to come by. I think that there's some indications that some presidents chose not to do certain things because they thought it might get them into impeachment trouble. And interesting enough, um, when Richard Nixon was facing the possibility of impeachment by the House of Representatives, he talk to his lawyers um, and political advisors about not um, complying with the Supreme Court decree that he turn over these tapes of conversations in the White House. And Nixon thought about it, and Nixon chose not to defy the court, partly because he knew that was just going to really rev up impeachment. In other words, if there's any doubt about it, any doubt left about impeachment, it was going to be removed by Nixon's just defying the court and refusing to turn over those tapes. Um, We might be able to uh, find some other presidents who've considered doing certain things and took a step back because they weren't sure um, they they could avoid impeachment if they committed those things. I think that's where impeachment probably has been most effective. Again, as a check, as um, as as a warning, so to speak, to high ranking officials This is what's going to happen to you if you don't follow a straight line here. Um, But I think the tough thing is, as the presidency has developed, its ability to keep confidential certain information has also increased. And that has also made it less accountable. And so it's uh, one of the things we're seeing, I think, in part, is that if impeachment is becoming weaker, or eviscerated or undermined, that necessarily means the president is less accountable. So we keep going back to President Nixon, in a way, it sounds like respecting Congress, turning documents and things over that Congress requests, which to us, anybody that's worked in Congress probably since, you know, at least 2010 is, is, you know, shocking, anathema, like, wow, (laughs) a White House actually cares what Congress uh, is asking them to produce. So is the impeachment mechanism broken? Uh, I I think impeachment is not uh, so much broken as it's just not, it wasn't designed as well as it could have been. This becomes evident when we consider the impact on Congress of some things the framers didn't fully anticipate, most importantly, political parties. So if you've got um, a mechanism like impeachment, that's only really going to work in the long run if fidelity to party is not stronger than fidelity to the law or fidelity to the Constitution. Now, having said that, I would point out, for example, we saw George Santos expelled recently. And while not all Republicans voted to expel him, a lot did. And so that may be an example of how that procedure works. It didn't, the party did not unify in opposition to 
uh, removing Santos, a lot of Republicans voted to expel him. And obviously a lot of Democrats voted to expel him. So it was very much a bipartisan vote. I think that's an example of what the framers perhaps had hoped. And I think what we're seeing with impeachment is the fact that the two-thirds threshold has become practically difficult, if not impossible to meet, the rise of political parties and their hold over people, the 24-7 news cycle, uh, social media, which I think is, with all due respect, produced a lot of disinformation. And I, and I think that's, that complicates the functioning of citizens in a democracy. Going back to the, the framers, education was important to the framers in part so that people could think clearly. They could uh, appreciate uh, what virtue was and they could appreciate uh, the art of governing. Um, but uh, that education is not quite as prized today as I, I think it was among the framers at the time of the founding. A lot of people um, have disdain for educational institutions. And, you know, if you're, you're the, the populace, if they're populist candidates, their supporters tend to be people who have disdain for education. It's exactly counter to what the framers had hoped for. So there are a lot of these developments are going on, which complicate and maybe impede impeachment. Uh, I think saying it's broken is probably a little bit too easy, too simple. I think there's just a lot of things that have made it perhaps less effective than it should have been. Now, having said all that, I would hasten to add that I don't think any president, at least up till now, has really wanted and been eager to be impeached. It's a taint. It's an indelible mark on them. And I think, um, although you know Donald Trump has tried to sort of cast himself as a martyr for having faced impeachment not once but twice, the reality is history is going to remember those impeachments. They're going to take, they'll probably be in the first line of the paragraph about Trump in any history books. So that gives us a sense of just how potent even an impeachment could be without the conviction. And frankly, I think part of the enterprise to impeach Joe Biden is an effort to dilute impeachment more, to be able to take the seriousness out of it and replace it simply with the idea that, oh, this is just about politics. It's just about partisanship. So you come after our guy, Trump, we're going to come after your guy. Well, that that only makes sense if Donald Trump had been impeached not once but twice for nothing. But I would argue that he was impeached on legitimate grounds both times. And I think the record is very strong on both, the record supports both of those impeachments. And that record is is inerasable. It's going to be there forever. So he can run, but he can't hide from it. You also have some really unique experiences with impeachment through testifying uh, in in front of Congress. And I do want to quickly get in on that and get your thoughts on on the current uh, Biden impeachment. To me, the current Biden impeachment, which I have not been following day to day, it seems like that James Comer is, you know, trying to create a new storyline every minute, releasing these opaque documents that make no sense to anybody right. who's not like in the weeds of this. And, and to me, it reminds me of when I was sitting in t- the RNC in 2016 doing opposition research on Hillary Clinton with Benghazi. It, it, it feels like they see this mechanism, in addition to what you said, where they can 
invoke the impeachment proceedings, the beginning thereof, to try and create opposition research, negative media, and really, like you said, delegitimize uh, the process. I, I think it's fair to say that the framers never even imagined that impeachment could be used like this to interfere with upcoming elections, or is this something that they discussed? I, I don't think they really foresaw this. They, when they talked about demagogues, they talked about demagogues as being worthy of being impeached and removed from office. There's not a lot of discussion in the convention about how impeachment wasn't going to work. It was more about, well, this is what impeachment's about. This is what it's going to focus on. And this is what its purpose is. And I think what, uh, I think you touch on a lot of good points. And I, I'll just pick up on a couple of them. I think referring back to the, this effort to sort of impeach Joe Biden, it's clearly meant to give Republican leaders in the House a platform to use to bash Biden throughout the election year. Well, that's not what impeachment is supposed to be for. And guess what? We all know Biden's not going to get convicted because it's highly unlikely Democrats will unify to convict him or even any significant number would break ranks. So if he's not going to be convicted and Republicans know that, why are they doing this? They're doing it because it's free airtime. They get to beat up on Joe Biden and say all sorts of things, many of most of which is lacks any evidentiary foundation. Um, so far, what Republicans have focused on in uh, the so-called Biden impeachment is Hunter Biden, who, by the way, is a private citizen, never served in government, uh, not in an impeachable position anyway, and certainly is not subject to impeachment now. But uh, when did we first hear about Hunter Biden and his corruption? When Donald Trump raised it as a defense in his own impeachment proceeding in 2019 by trying to argue that no, not he, Donald Trump, Joe Biden is the most corrupt individual in the history of America. Um, but I'll become a little political here. Donald Trump tends to project. And I think he's, when he calls Joe Biden the most corrupt official in American history, he's simply trying to divert attention away from himself and his own misconduct. And I think that's what he was doing in 2019 when he, start, he, he talked about Biden removing the head prosecutor in Ukraine, supposedly to help his son, when it turned out that was the objective of the Obama administration. Um, and so what we're seeing now is just a continuation of that. It's designed to help Trump and designed to hurt Biden. Couldn't agree more. We're speaking with Professor Gerhardt, the author of The Law of Presidential Impeachment, a guide for the engaged citizen. Folks, if you're interested in impeachment, this is a book you have to read, especially if you're enjoying our conversation right now. So Professor Gearhart, I'm going to ask you to also put on that political hat again. Our show's view is similar to yours. Trump should have been impeached and convicted in both of those. Those were high crimes. President Biden's impeachment we just went over is probably illegitimate. I don't know if that's maybe too strong of a word, but considering the difference in the legitimacy of the facts at the core of what is driving these impeachment uh, trials between Trump's two investigations and Biden's current ongoing investigation. How should the Biden administration respond to these investigations? Well, I, you know, I'm not, um, I, I'm not so much an expert in politics, so I can, you know, I can venture an idea or two, but I, you know, my... What, what about legally? Is there any difference there? Legally, I think I think the Biden administration 
has perhaps wisely not tried to sort of be a party to this circus. And that's what this is going to become. It's going to, it's going to, going to become a circus in the House and maybe, who knows, in the Senate later. But I think the president is probably right to think, okay, we're, we're going to, we're not going to, you know, blow this out of proportion. We're going to try and sort of deal with this as I suppose best we can, but generally speaking, keeping it on the down low. Um, And then I think the second thing is Joe Biden could cooperate, but the problem is all the talk right now is about Hunter Biden. So the question just becomes whether Hunter Biden wants to cooperate. He's offered to testify. Now, interestingly enough, Republicans have said they want him to testify in private, not in public. Um, And now I have to ask the question, why? And I think it's because in public hearings, Hunter Biden probably would be able to point out the fallacy of so many of the um, charges leveled against him. I'm not saying Hunter Biden, you know, who knows? I'm, you know, I don't know. I've not studied Hunter Biden. There may be a class on him. There may, you know, there may be all sorts of other things on, you know, Hunter Biden you could, you know, study. I've not studied those things. Uh, um, but I think that um, it, it's also worth noting that the United States Supreme Court, in a case in which Trump was a party, this is Trump versus Mazars. In that case, the Supreme Court of the United States was looking at the scope of the power of the House of Representatives to investigate the president personally. And the Supreme Court ruled, among the things the Supreme Court ruled, was that law enforcement is not one of the functions of the House. So you can't use this subpoena power in the House to simply go after a crime that you think might have been committed. That's the job of a prosecutor. So the fact is, when I, in the hearing I sat through, there were lots of criminal charges thrown out against Hunter Biden and a few against Joe Biden. But the House of Representatives is not the place where criminal law gets enforced. If And we, we do it instead in courts of law with prosecutors. And there are a lot of safeguards in place there to ensure it's not a frivolous conviction or not a, a frivolous prosecution or a partisan prosecution. Um, and for the House to be acting in, I think, defiance of what the Supreme Court said is only part of the House's efforts to turn impeachment into nothing more than a circus. So I, I think we all agree that the U.S. Senate is extremely unlikely. I think there's really zero chance that they'll convict President Biden. And we also probably agree that there's almost no chance that any Democrats will defect in the House. Uh, but to give my kind of political analysis here, and maybe Justin disagrees, I'm not even sure that the Republican Party will vote to impeach President Biden in the first place. I think that the persuasion effort is not really targeted at the Senate at all. I don't think it's targeted at Democrats in the House at all. I think it's an entirely internecine issue inside the House GOP. They have such a slim majority. They the people who are behind this push for impeachment really want to just clear that bar of a simple majority and call it a win by impeaching President Biden. And what I think is a kind of interesting uh, professor that you could kind of help us understand is the extent to which these Republicans are persuaded in one way or another. As we discussed earlier in the program, during the Clinton impeachment process, you were a joint witness 
which suggests that both Democrats and Republicans wanted to hear what you had to say about impeachment. And in this case, there are Republicans who are presumably on the fence about whether Biden should be impeached. So I'd love to hear whether in your experience in 1998, there was interest on both sides to hear what you had to say, and there was the ability to persuade then, and whether you think that's there now, that the Republicans might be listening to what you had to say at the recent hearing. Well, I'll describe the two hearings, uh, give you an idea of, of how times have changed. In 1998, the House was considering the impeachment of Bill Clinton. And um, I had the extraordinary honor of being invited by two members of the House to come speak to them. One was Democrat, um, one was a Republican. David Skaggs was Democrat, Jim Leach was the Republican. And at the end of the conversation, they said, you know, we'd like you to speak to the House of Representatives about these issues. And I said, okay. Then they said, follow us. And they walked me into a room and every member of the House was in there. Uh, it was, a, there was nobody, no press, no staff, just the members of the House with me at a lectern at the front of the room. And they wanted me to talk about the law of, of impeachment. And they asked terrific questions, both Republicans and Democrats. And then at the end, Charles Kennedy, Republican, Bobby Scott, a friend of mine, was at that time my representative, both came up and said, um, we'd like you to testify. Uh, And I did. So I I testified later as a joint witness. And at that hearing with Clinton, if you go back and look at it and listen to it, all of the questions that were directed at me and the other experts were all about the law of impeachment. It's a very fair game. If I'm going to talk about impeachment in a hearing, somebody wants to talk about my writings, they want to talk about my research, whatever, that is completely fair game. Now you fast forward to the Trump hearing in 2019. And in the 2019 hearing, not a single Republican asked a substantive question. What they did, though, was engage in argument ad hominem. They called us names. They called us partisans. Nobody engaged with the actual law or the actual substance of the matter. And I regret to say, I think that's going to be the case these days. When I appeared at the end of September in the Biden hearing, Republicans, I think maybe I got one question from them. It was not sort of uh, an attack on my character or um, anything else. But otherwise, it was very similar to that experience in 2019. And I, I regret to say, I think that's going to be the likely atmosphere that will prevail uh, going forward. Um, it's, it is a shame um, because I think the American people deserve better. But with half the electorate perhaps not really caring about the merits of any Biden impeachment, but just thinking he's got to be evil because he's Democrat and he's old, so let's just toss him out. Um, that's, uh, that's not good for the Constitution. And it's not good for um, American politics. I want to ask a little bit of a personal question here, although it's also a public question. When you're preparing for specifically the Trump 
impeachment that you mentioned, there was a lot of ad hominem attacks from the Republican members. You, you got to know that that's going to happen. Yeah. This is a big international, not national, not regional, not local, international historic event. I'm somebody that has helped people prepare for hearings over hurricane relief and big contentious topics, right? But but nothing like an impeachment. So when we were working with committee staff to help prepare the witness, we were preparing for factual issues like where is this billion dollars of money going to go? Uh, you know, is it waste, fraud, and abuse from the Republicans, not attacks on character? How did you approach preparing for a hearing where? you were going to get where you knew you needed to be prepared for ad hominem attacks. And then a step further, what did it feel like when you have all these cameras on you, you know, this is going to be historical record forever. Um, and you're getting these uh, just disgusting attacks leveled on your, your, your personal being. Well, I appreciate the question. Um, I, so I, I prepare in a couple different ways. Um, First of all, um, as you know, um, really the first thing that happens uh, if you're invited to testify is you have to write up a statement. So when I do that, I really try and think of myself first and foremost as an educator, not as an advocate. So my objective in going in um, is just to try to help educate the members of Congress about their great power of impeachment. And therefore, um, I, I try and I do that in a, in a relatively sort of polite, calm sort of discourse, uh, just trying to explain, okay, here's uh, what I think the law is. Here's how it works here. Here may be the challenge. Here, uh, here are issues we might have to think about. And so I work through that, uh, knowing, quite frankly, it's televised. You know this well. I've learned this by working in the Congress. People think of things like this as political theater. And so I think it's a mistake to go in thinking it's going to be anything other than political theater. So in that case, I know the camera's on. So I am basically there as an educator. And when people come at me in a, in a personal way, in a derogatory way, I keep remembering the camera's on. And I believe in a circumstance like that, if a member of Congress wants to get personal, mean, and get into the mud, I'm not going to join him there. I believe by being respectful, I, um, I, I show the kind of attitude I think one should have for the House of Representatives as one of the great institutions set forth in the Constitution. And impeachment is a, a significant constitutional event. And so I'm serious. You know, I, I'm not going to play games. I'm not going to, you know, uh, um, uh, call, you know, call people names and get, get in the mud. But I think that the more people attack me for a- anything other than the merits, they're just showing people back home, something about them. I don't really take it personally because, frankly, I think it's sometimes uh, disarming when somebody comes at me like this. I I think my wife or my son pointed this out once. is during the 2019 testimony in front of the 
House Judiciary Committee. And one of the Republicans, may have been Louis Gomert, I'm not sure, was coming at me in a you know very personally uh, antagonistic way. And when he said, you know, Professor Garrett, I said, yes, sir. It took, he was off balance. He, I don't, he didn't know what to do. You could tell he was, he was becoming, he got discombobulated there for a minute because he wasn't used to somebody on the other side being that respectful. But my view is, I, you know what they say in, in the military, you, you salute the rank, not the person. Um, I used to have the same attitude in the, in the House or the Senate. I am respectful to the members because I see them as an institution and I'm not going to look at them so much personally. So I used to work for a gentleman who was not much dissimilar from Louis Gomer. And I'll give you the very quick perspective of the staff when this is going on. We invited the former IRS commissioner Koskinen into our office to discuss at the time that this was going on, there was, you know, conspiracy theories about the IRS maligning conservative groups. I testified in one of those hearings. <laughs> they're, they're, okay, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. This was a big issue. Our listeners will just have to trust us. My boss was a Tea Party leader, firebrand, similar to Mr. Gomer over there. And, and we invited the IRS commissioner into the office. The gentleman was the nicest person like we've ever had in this office. Mind you, there's no cameras, so it's not what you experience. But as my boss started to attack this poor gentleman for everything under the sun, um, any self-respecting staffer is just mortified. So uh, I, I think that, um, you know, maybe the actors at the hearing, the, the members on the panel don't care, but the people who are actually the brains behind the operations, they understand it's beneath the institution. It's beneath you as a witness and um, really a blight on our system. So I did just want to provide you that from a Republican staffer. I appreciate that. I mean, whatever one thinks about my scholarship and anything I have to do with impeachment, um, I at least try and be honest and uh, diligent in what I put together. I think that um, I'm going to treat people in the old adage like I would like to be treated. You know. So because Justin mentioned the other panelists as other actors in the hearing, I was actually curious uh, to ask you about this, Professor, because you were on stage there on the dais or however it should be described with three other people, one of whom was a forensic accountant named Bruce Dubinsky, but the other two being colleagues of yours, being experts in the field of law. And that's GW professor Jonathan Turley and a former assistant AG named Eileen O'Connor, who served in the Trump administration. And, you know, if this is impolite to ask, you can always uh, demure. But I wonder, what is the reputation of those figures in the field of scholarship on impeachment law? Are those the sort of witnesses that, you know, you think are peers to yourself and their knowledge and expertise on this issue? I think that's a question probably best asked others. Um, I, because in part, because I'm not going to judge my own scholarship on that, you know, metric. Um, but, you know, Jonathan Turley and I have been friends for a while. We've testified together a number of times, though, on different sides. I had not met the um, the other person before that hearing. Jonathan has written about impeachment. I don't think she had, but um, she was there, as I recall, mostly to talk about tax, criminal tax investigations, which, by the way, sort of reinforces my point that the House of Representatives should not be engaged in 
in investigating violations of the criminal law. That's not the House's function. And therefore, uh, that ought to be left to the prosecutor. So we've talked about impeachment maybe not being broken, but needing to be, you know, reformed. What reforms should lawmakers consider? What reforms are you pushing to your to your friends on Capitol Hill that they should think about writing in the law? And the second question is, with such an important mechanism for the balance of power needing to be reformed, in, in your view, and a lot of people's view, simply put, with the state of impeachment how it is now, can Congress carry out effective oversight, just effective oversight of the executive branch? I think the answer is it's unlikely to be able to engage in effective oversight of the executive branch because um, because of the prevalence of tribalism, uh, this idea that, uh, I mean, the hatred is palpable. You walk into that, that hearing room, you can feel the, the tension among the members and feel the dislike and disdain. And of course, in American history, people in Congress have often been at odds and even often hated each other. One thing, I mean, the the most significant reforms, I think, are probably the hardest ones to achieve. Uh, I first would say education, because I think it's really important for not just members of Congress, but for the people to really get to know their constitution, not to kind of make it up, not to sort of engage in sort of fantasies about the constitution, but instead really get to know about the Constitution, which means sort of rolling up your sleeves and reading about the history, reading about the practice, and trying to get a sense of what the Constitution says about something. Um, I think the second thing is that at some point, uh, there's going to have to be, we're going to have to hope to move to a point where people on both sides can find something else to do than to demonize each other. That that as long as that's a priority, life in Congress can be very difficult. It can happen. I, I think it, it's it's interesting, again, to note the vote on Santos. Um, you know, For all the dislike the members have for each other, it was a bipartisan vote. That suggests that there's still some possibility of common ground somewhere. And then I think a third thing is we're never going to be able to amend the Constitution. I think that, that two-thirds threshold is just, it's really impractical. And one reason why it's impractical is because presidents don't resign anymore. Nixon resigned, but Bill Clinton was never going to resign. Donald Trump is never going to resign. And I'm pretty confident Joe Biden's never going to resign. So if they're not going to resign, then they're going to force the Senate to put everything to a vote. And odds are not reach that two-thirds threshold. So it will have been, for the most part, a waste of time and resources. And until constituents, and this is why we get back to the engaged citizen, until constituents are willing to hold their representatives and senators accountable for their abuses of power, I think we're going to continue to see those abuses, uh, whether they be in the White House or whether they be in Congress. Congress. 